This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Welcome to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture, right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. I, of course, am your host, David Dole, and coming up on today's show, has your politics impacted your relationships? Do you even date outside of your own political views? I'll be taking your calls on that after 9.15. Also... Doug Ford's dishonesty around why GM plans to close their plant in Oshawa. I'll discuss that after 9.30. And later on in the show, an incredible, almost Hollywood-level story of voter fraud in North Carolina. All that and more coming up on the David Dole Show. But first, Canada Post and the Canadian Union of Postal Workers have yet to reach an agreement following the uh, Liberal Party's back-to-work legislation. Joining me to discuss this is Christo Avalis, a postdoctoral fellow in the History Department at the University of Toronto and the author of the Washington Post opinion piece titled Trudeau Turns His Back on Organized Labor. Christo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So first off, maybe give us a, an overview right now. What's happening with the negotiations between the Canadian Union of Postal Workers and Canada Post and uh, what effect Trudeau's liberals have had with their back-to-work legislation? Well, you know, the way that the way that basically works is that, um, you know, the parties were in negotiations, um, but due to kind of pressure from the from the from the Canada Post management and from you know certain certain business lobbies, the Liberal Party kind of noted a couple weeks ago that it was going to enact legislation kind of imminently, which you know largely kind of stopped the bargaining process because uh, the postal uh, employers knew that they they likely had legislation coming down that would stop the strike. Uh, right now, technically, bargaining can still continue. Um, there's nothing to stop that uh, technically, but the workers' leverage is now gone. There's discussions about the, the, the kind of uh, appointing of a kind of conciliator slash arbitrator, which ideally the two sides could agree on, but if not, it will be appointed by the government, and you know that could happen um, to, uh, to help get a deal. One of the challenges right now, as well as that, um, the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, CUPW, as well as the Canadian Labour Congress, uh, of which CUPW is a member, um, uh, see the legislation as unconstitutional, violating the charter right to strike, uh, and as such there will be legal challenges, but those legal challenges will take months and months and months, and, and, and likely will, will, be, um, will be finally dealt with well after the time that a deal has either been arbitrated in or has, has been reached by the two parties. So I saw you tweet something out about, um, I think it was in Halifax, they're arresting uh, these... Uh, these uh, strikers right now. So can you just uh, let people know what exactly is, is apparently happening in Halifax? Well, you know, it's a, you know, you get so much on social media. Basically what's happening is that um, due to this legislation, uh, the postal workers are unable to, to continue their strike. They've been legislated back to work. Now, again, they believe it's unconstitutional, but in a sense, the government is kind of right until the courts say it's not. So the law is technically in place until overruled. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, you know, those challenges will happen. But the reality is that these are not Cup W members. These are other members of the labor movement or they're people who are sympathetic to the plight of the postal workers. And they are launching protests against the government. And the government, uh, and in this particular case, uh, local police in Halifax have arrested some of those people. So in okay. essence, 
Um, and again, this is maybe on your interpretation, but it could be interpreted as people are being arrested in part for defending what they feel is the, the basic charter right to strike. Okay. Um, so, yeah, you kind of mentioned there that—so our right to strike was upheld in court against the Harper against Harper's conservatives. How is, uh, I guess, this back-to-work legislation uh, any different than, than what Harper did? Well, you know, yeah, the, the right to strike was ultimately— included in um you know some legislation that actually had to deal more with the saskatchewan provincial government but in essence what happened is that 2011 um legislation kind of read retroactively with that court decision against the postal workers was seen as uh, against the right to strike now the government will argue and the courts have said this that the right to strike like 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 the right to free speech is not absolute there are certain limits you can place on it and not have it violate the charter the liberals will argue that because they let the strike go on for a decent amount of time and because they feel that they're not they're not putting a stringent you know you must legislate you know a certain wage increase uh, on the arbitrator and on the union that they're respecting the right to bargain collectively and the right to strike so they might be able to make a case in the courts that because of their legislative and political approach it was it it, it meets the line of constitutionality but the argument could also be that you know they failed to prove that they needed to legislate these workers back. This wasn't an emergency scenario. Um, mail was being delivered still. This was a rotating strike. There was mm-hmm. also the discussion of the fact that some essentials like like EI and Social Security checks were still being delivered. So in essence, you know, no one was really suffering. Uh, you know, in, in a kind of uh, life-threatening way, based on this is not a a brain surgeon strike or anything of yeah. that sort. Um, and and then there was you know debates here now because again these are debates. There's not I, I don't know the facts 100 percent, but um, that the government was uh, you know uh, perhaps embellishing the effects of the backlog to to help justify at least politically the need to to, to use this backlog legislation uh, and, and and you know and, and so in that case so those debates will be happening. That's will be the government's perspective is that this is less draconian than Harper's 2011 back-to-work legislation against the postal workers, and as such, may be constitutional. But again, we won't know the answer to that for years, likely. Okay. So um, how exactly are tr- tr- Justin Trudeau and, and the liberals able to, I guess, uh, hide behind their close relationship with uh, Unifor here and seeming like they're, they're, they have strong ties to, to unions, but, I mean, clearly they have made moves here against organized labor. So... How do you see, uh, I guess, Trudeau's ability to really um, make it seem like he's he's friendly with with labor while making moves against them? Well, there's a, there's a few things. One, the reality is that uh, you know the Liberal Party in Canada is is often seen as as less offensive to the kind of broad ABC voter category. And the reality of our system is that it, and in a, you know, in my opinion, uh, holds voters hostage. Uh, into voting a certain way. If you're a conservative, even if you like Maxime Bernier's new party, you almost feel like you're held hostage by Andrew Scheer. And like a lot of people, and maybe I disagree, but they feel like they're hostage to Justin Trudeau Mm -hmm. because they don't want Scheer to win. And likewise, maybe you're hostage to Scheer because you don't want Trudeau to win. You know, so there's, there's there's that sense. So Trudeau has that strategic advantage, and some groups kind of grin, and, you know, and, and they, 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 they grimace and they vote liberal anyway. But it's also just people have short historical memories, and they do remember Harper's time as prime minister 
and he probably was in many ways perhaps a little bit more anti-labor than Trudeau, but they, you know, they forget Craig Fan, they forget Martin, they forget mm-hmm. Trudeau Sr., who I've done a lot of research on, um, and they forget that they've assaulted the right to strike and bargain collectively, perhaps more systematically than Stephen Harper did. And so that there's, that there's that reality that we forget that lesson of the Liberal Party. And the Liberals are really the masters of messaging. The difficulty with Harper was that he attacked unions, but he did so pretty vociferously because it was good for his base. Yeah. And that created a lot of sympathy for unions. So if you remember correctly, do you remember those blue, those blue buttons saying Harper hates me or Harper hates science or Harper mm-hmm. hates women? Yeah. Those were a big thing kind of in the run-up to 2015. Those were done by a segment of the Public Service Alliance of Canada, which, like CUPW, is a federal public sector union. And they generated a lot of support based on this anti-Harper animus. But Trudeau, much more, I guess, careful about his anti-labor usage, um, doesn't generate that kind of backlash. So many of those, say, small businesses that really weren't pro-labor, that they didn't like Harper, would form a strategic alliance with workers. But with a liberal in, in the prime minister's office, such doesn't exist, and that, that's why workers are in a really tough spot. And Trudeau, again, he has some strategic alliances with certain unions, whether it's Liuna, which often either goes liberal or conservative, or whether it's the Unifor, who for, for whatever reason has a close tie to the Liberal Party. Um, it really creates this, this perception that um, he has the support of Labour um, and, and, and that he's a, a good vote for the, for the party. And again, finally, you know, the reality is in Canada, there's a lot of historical inertia, and a lot of people don't consider, you know, voting for the New Democrats, either because they don't feel they'll win. And so if you're one of those people, you say, well, okay, well, I'm a union member. You know, the Liberals aren't really great to me, but they're better than the other guys, so I'll vote for them. And, and again, historically, the case hasn't always been that the Liberals have been better for workers than the Tories, even if it's, that's the case in the short term. Mm-hmm. I'm talking with Christo Avalis, a postdoctoral fellow in the History Department at the University of Toronto and the author of the Washington Post opinion piece titled Trudeau Turns His Back on Organized Labor. You're also the author of the, uh, the book The Constant Liberal, Pierre Trudeau, that you kind of uh, you mentioned there, uh, Organized Labor and the Canadian Social Democratic Left. So what sort of connections do you draw about um, uh, organized labor from uh, Pierre Trudeau to his uh, son, our, our current PM? Well, you know, there's, there's, a, there's quite a few similar. There's obviously a lot of differences. I don't want to, you know, like a father-like son thing, even though that maybe helps to sell books and it helps to, to get clicks on social media. But the reality is that, you know, both of them, in a sense, did rather well on workers on key, on key junctures. Uh, Trudeau, both Trudeaus, when they got elected, really came in on this wave of optimism that a lot of workers bought into. Um, and, and got a lot of support from. And they came in, in a sense, on a kind of countering of a certain conservative message. So in 72, for instance, Pierre Trudeau ran against the conservative program of wage controls that are going to legislate maximum wage increases on unions. And Trudeau ran against that. Now, of course, Trudeau won that election in 74, sorry, and then came in and put on the wage controls that he did. But the reality is the one thing they share is that they both have this sort of progressive cred. Perhaps Pierre, he earned it more. Uh, in his youth, he was a he was a, you know, a labor activist in many ways. Mm. Um, but um, both kind of ultimately have, through their education, through their class background, through their wealth, through their connections, um, have a fundamental interest of the one percent and not so much of the the ninety nine percent or the or the ninety percent. And it kind of shows that key juncture. So there'll be times where Trudeau will do things. Both Trudeaus did things that were uh, seen as beneficial for workers. But when push came to shove. When the backs were against the wall, 
he chose the latter. And as I noted in that Washington Post piece, Trudeau here had to choose between the inconveniences of business and the fundamental human rights of workers, and he chose mm. the former. And likewise, Pierre Trudeau you know, often said he cared about workers, but when it came down to it, he had wage and price controls, which froze wages but didn't really freeze prices, the result of which was the kind of um, start of this, of this gap we still see today, which is as companies are very, very profitable, wages seem to stagnate. And that in Canada largely starts under Pierre Trudeau, in the late mid 70s to the early 1980s. Hmm. So sort of the the ultimate neoliberals here where they they'll they'll speak a good game and they will make some moves that are positive towards workers, but ultimately um, I mean when it comes down to it they're they're going to do what's best for for business. Yeah, no, certainly. Certainly. And and to some degree it's what you might call passive revolutionary. It's Trudeau and King, uh, Pierre Trudeau and Mackenzie King were, were great at this. They realized that there were moments in Canadian history where you needed to kind of appeal to the left to neutralize the left. Justin Trudeau, to, do, to some degree, did this in 2015. He ran on something of a center-left campaign. I'm not, I'm not one to buy that it was to the left of the NDP's campaign. That was the, the narrative. But, but, it, but it, was, it was at least in the same ballpark. And the reality is, he, on, on electoral reform, he ran on, I'm, I'm going to be a, a pro-worker prime minister. He ran on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enact every single one of the recommendations uh, in the in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's you know list of ninety odd recommendations, mm-hmm. and of course on all of those promises he failed, and on some of those promises he hasn't just failed, he's misrepresented his objective, and so it's much like Pierre Trudeau ran on the idea of the just society, he's going to be good to workers, uh, it's going he's going to be you know a, a radical PM in some ways, but at the end of the day, uh, tax reform, on the guaranteed annual income, on wage and price controls, it was ultimately an effort to to kind of neutralize those leftward things. So, for example, one from from, from Pierre Trudeau is uh, his ability to um, take uh, nationalism and socialism that were growing around energy and to create a, you know uh, the national energy program, um, which was largely a pro subsidy of force to business and not what the New Democrats were proposing, which was kind of a nationalization of our energy to make it more to kind of build a kind of Scandinavian style energy system in Canada. It probably would have been mm. a good thing in retrospect, yeah. but Trudeau was able to neutralize that. And kind of like what Justin Trudeau does to a certain degree with his feminism. So, for instance, the, the federal liberals will, will have a general equal cabinet. They will you know, talk about how you know, corporations and, and businesses need to have more female leadership. And I think I would, I would agree to those things, of course. But um, one of the most fundamental issues in this round of bargaining of Cup W is pay equity and, and, and job equity between its work staffs, and you have on the one hand, you have the kind of more 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 male or at least more gender-balanced urban carriers who have better benefits and wages and working conditions, and then you have the predominantly female rural carriers who are largely treated inferior, with it, uh, as inferior, and the government has in essence told these unions who are fighting for pay equity that we're going to violate your charter rights to prevent you from doing so. And then this very same day, have conferences held by Marianne Monsef, the Minister for the Status of Women, talking about how we need to have you know, more corporate CEOs who are women. And so the Liberals, in a sense, are able to do that, whereas the Tories, the Tories will take maybe a more hardline position on both and then allow Labour, for instance, to kind of connect the two, where it's more obscured when there's a kind of Liberal in the office giving you half of what you want, uh, yeah. but, but, but maybe not all of it, and, allow, and preventing you from, from, from achieving your goals. So, I mean, these half measures, I guess, are sort of working because uh, 
the Liberals are on track right now to retain a majority next year. Uh, what do the the NDP really need to do to grab that that left wing base that I I know exists in Canada, but always tend to fall into the trap of uh, of the lesser of two evils? Well, you know, there's a few things here. One, we are, we are a long ways away, and you know, uh, the news often has the you know the, some people are treating Trudeau's victory in 2019 as an inevitability. Certainly, things do look well for him right now, and it is rare in Canada that. Um, prime ministers are thrown out after one term. It's just not something. It happens, but it's like with the U.S., most presidents uh, tend to kind of get two terms, and uh, especially in modern times. And um, much the same is, is, is that prime ministers often get more than one term at being prime minister. But, you know, I think one of the issues is that they have to, the NDP needs to kind of hammer home where Trudeau has fallen short in his support for some of the ideas that speak to the broad uh, a non-conservative voter. They vote liberal, they vote green, they vote NDP. These kind of broad ABC voters, if you will. And he needs to speak to them, Jagmeet Singh and the rest of the caucus, on electoral reform, on fundamental rights of workers, on indigenous issues, on environmental issues, on how um, Trudeau has kind of kowtowed to Trump and uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, you know, and, and how he's you know put ahead the interests of, of weapons manufacturers and oil companies over fundamental human rights. These are where you have to kind of go at him. And I think one, one thing you have to look at is, uh, and this could be a blessing in a sense, is that you know the, the rise of Maxime Bernier's uh, People's Party, well, again, it's mm-hmm. not polling extremely well, is, is, is eating away from Scheer's vote. And it could make the case for some people that, um, you know, maybe I don't need to vote strategically for Trudeau this time. That might not ultimately defeat Trudeau, but, you know, it could peel away a couple percentages of the vote here and there. And that's what you might need, because um, if you were to look at the polls today and say that, you know, it, the, the goal could be to keep Trudeau to a minority. Now, I don't want to say this election's over. A lot of people in 2011 might not know that with um, three weeks to go in that election, Jack Layton was polling lower now than Jagmeet Singh is. Um, mm. but, but in three weeks, was able to effectively go from about 14 to about 30. Mm-hmm. So the, the, in no way is this election over, yep. but it is to say that, um, that's what they have to do. They really have to hammer home where Trudeau has failed the sort of people that gave him his majority and mm-hmm. get those people to vote on principle for once. And they need to go to people who are getting arrested for, for protecting the right to strike and say, look, how strategic is an ally when he jails you for protesting pipelines or he protesting yeah. um, you know, the lack of clean water on indigenous reserves mm-hmm. or protesting the fundamental human rights to strike and bargain collectively? How strategic is that? Yeah. And that won't convince everybody. Some people will still mark Ellen ballot just to keep Sheer out. Um, but it'll, it, may, it may convince enough people that it could really make a difference in the electoral map in 2019. So before we go, I want to get your quick thoughts on uh, GM and uh, the job losses, obviously, in, in Oshawa and, I guess, Trudeau and Doug Ford's reactions and uh, sort of what you think maybe should happen here. Well, you know, their reactions are mostly predictable. Yeah. Um, you know, they fit, they fit the, the ideology because, again, the, the Ford and Trudeau do not like each other, and their voters do not like each other. So I might make enemies of both and saying the men are really not that, uh, that different Yeah, I agree with fundamental you. beliefs. Mm-hmm. On social issues, they probably are. Yeah. I mean, you, I don't think Justin Trudeau would cut, you know, francophone services in Ontario, and he yeah. probably wouldn't cut the carbon tax. But, but neither uh, really want to question the fundamental supremacy of corporations to determine our economic destiny. They mm-hmm. both believe in that. So it's not surprising that for them they want you know they want you know maybe some increased EI and services for, for 
for some of the workers affected, but none of them are questioning, and I think we do need to see more of this. It's like, why do we let GM tell us if we can build cars here or not? And I think there's something to be said for um, a public corporation or a worker-owned corporation building vehicles in Canada, not just because we, not just a, as a, you know, a make-work project, yeah. building green vehicles, building the mechanisms of public transit, and doing it outside the bounds of profit motive. And I don't know if that's feasible. Like right now, I'm not a, you know, I don't have the, the research done on that, but I yep. know that's a discussion we can have. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we're not having it from either our provincial premier or our federal prime minister shows that the balance of our political debate are too limited. And I think that's really where we need to go. Because, again, at the end of the day, we got workers in Canada, we got demand in Canada, mm-hmm. we got raw materials in Canada. So it, there's no reason we cannot build vehicles in Canada. Uh, and, and just because GM or any other company says we can't, I don't think we need to listen to them. Um, we're a democracy. We're not, we're not an autocracy, you know, uh, run by, you know, a few companies largely headquartered outside of this country. Christovalis is a postdoctoral fellow in the history department at the University of Toronto and the author of the Washington Post opinion piece titled Trudeau Turns His Back on Organized Labor. Christo, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, what effect has politics had on your relationships, good or bad? Have you dated someone with a different political view than yours? And how did that work out? I want to know. Give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. This is The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. The David Dole Show continues on News Talk 1010. Welcome back to The David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. So as I teased before the break, I'm taking your calls on politics and relationships. What effect has politics had on your relationship, good or bad? Have you dated someone with different political views than yours? And how did that work out? I want to know. Once again, give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. Now, before I get to uh, the first caller here, there was a, um, the, so the song I just played before this break was a new song from the artist Grimes, a Canadian artist. Now, Grimes is sort of under this weird heat uh, from this, I guess uh, I would say uh, this tiny uh, left-wing minority of her followers who are critical of her now because she's now uh, dating Elon Musk, the, the billionaire founder of Tesla and SpaceX. And their criticism is that Grimes was or appeared to be somewhat of a a Marxist or, I mean, at the very least, a, a progressive. And now she is dating somebody who is worth billions of dollars, has issues with uh, labor unions, or actually he's he's a union buster. And um, there's been issues with, with uh, injuries at his workplaces that have been higher than uh, normal for the industry. So there's this criticism now that, <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's kind of weird to, to talk about it because it's it's... It seems like a minority of people, but this is sort something that I think people can relate to. It's politics and relationships. So what effect does politics have on your relationship? So right now we have a uh, caller, Sarah, from Toronto. Um, Sarah, what are your thoughts on, on politics and, and relationships? Um, I do think it would be really difficult to date someone, especially if you're heavily involved in politics. Um, I think, like, of course, if you're someone maybe that's just someone that leans left or may just lean right, it probably will have little impact of your relationship. But, like, for instance, I'm someone that's a Green Party person. I mm-hmm. could never vote for, like, I could never be with somebody 
that like doesn't believe in climate change or doesn't mm. believe that like that's the most pressing issue of our time. So I think it, you know, your politics does influence your your personal life and, you know, it depends on how politically involved you are, but mm-hmm. I definitely think it's, it's a huge factor. So do you find it weird when you, uh, I guess, hear about uh, couples that, you know, that they, they differ politically, maybe they vote for, one votes conservative, one votes liberal. Uh, do you ever question how, how do these people actually get along? Um, I think it, I, I definitely think it depends on, you know, like how strongly they are about their opinions. Like if you're someone that's like, oh, I'm a social liberal, but a fiscal conservative, but like your bottom line is your fiscal conservatism um, versus someone that might just really like Trudeau. Like I don't really, I, I can see where it may not affect a couple like that, but I personally, I think it, it matters a great deal. Great. All right, Sarah, thanks for the call. Okay, bye-bye. So I think that, I'm sort of with Sarah here. I feel like you, it's, it would be impossible for me to, to, uh, to date somebody that doesn't have my, my worldview. Now, obviously, you're going to differ with people on, you know, specific issues. But I look at politics as sort of all-encompassing with, with who you are. So, I mean, the way you look at morality, how we treat the poor, how we uh, think about the working class, uh, the middle class. I mean... I feel like your views towards these uh, very divisive issues, if if you have, I mean, wildly different views, like the caller said, on climate change, I mean, if you're if you're with somebody who doesn't believe that, that climate change is real and, and you do believe it's, I mean, it's real because let's just be honest, it, it is uh, based in science. But um, the idea that, that you can be with somebody that just is going to completely ignore evidence, just... And I mean, that extends to other parts of the relationship as well. I could just imagine it being, I don't know, uh, it's something that I just, it's hard for me to picture because I've never been in that situation. And I feel like if I ever was, I would quickly get out of it. Um, But again, we're taking your calls on this. So what effect has politics had on your relationship, good or bad? Have you dated somebody with different political views than yours? And how did that work out? I want to know. Give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text at 71010. Another couple that I guess is maybe the most high-profile uh, political couple that differ on, on politics. A lot of uh, our older listeners will, will know this, and that's uh, James Carville, the uh, Democratic strategist in the U.S., is married to Mary Matlin, who is a Republican political consultant. Now, both of these names were more famous in, in the 90s. James Carville worked with uh, Bill Clinton and uh, Mary Matlin worked with the Republican Party. But uh, <laughs> when it comes to, to, to this couple specifically, I actually think it's more about um, these two are very career-oriented. So there is this tendency in, in politics, especially in, in American politics, for a lot of people who are engaged in politics to sort of not even really care all that much about the issues as long as they're getting paid. And I kind of feel like that's what's going on here. Um, but I don't know. Uh, we do have a new caller here from, uh, uh, Chris from Toronto. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on this? Hey, uh, so just a real quick one here. I actually dated, um, for just over two years, a woman from Texas, uh, specifically the Houston area. And obviously as the relationship progressed, 
uh, certain views were expressed. And boy, I tell you, it was probably the most uh, interesting relationship I've ever had in my entire life. Um, <laughs> she, uh, well, she was a she, she voted for Trump, and oh, I obviously would not have. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it can it, it eventually, honestly, did. You know, it was the demise of the relationship eventually, and. It was on me, and I've never ended a relationship my entire life. I'm in my 40s. I've never ended a relationship, but I could not understand some of her views. Sometimes she'd say stuff, and uh, one particular time I was at a restaurant with her family, and I looked across the table, and she said the look that I gave her, and I honestly didn't know that I did. She said it was like I was looking at a clown at a circus. So (laughs) So, uh, I'm super curious about this. So what, what topics did you two actually talk about that you, I mean, got along on? Well, um, uh, I'm a bit of a, of a nature nut, uh, an outdoorsy type person, as, mm. as was she. Um, that probably, uh, we both read, uh, you know, I still read. We, we both were, you know, were readers, so to speak. Um, family uh, values and stuff were very similar, except, uh, and not to introduce another sort of, you know, topic here, but, you know, she was a, 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 a practicing Christian, and I'm mm. not. Yeah, um, that's also course, yeah. religion for sure is another one as well that I think kind of goes hand in hand with politics. If you differ true. on religion and politics, it's yeah. super hard to 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 date someone. Um, yeah, I had both of them going against me to be honest. I'm surprised. <laughs> now, listen, we we actually do we do still occasionally communicate and things are amicable, but hmm. sometimes I'll toss out you know if it's been three months since I spoke to her and something happens with our guy down south, if I'll throw out a, a jabby little text at her saying you still support this guy or something and. <laughs> to get a conversation going but yeah. we remained friends uh, we remained friends but definitely it was not something that was going to work out long time it's too bad we both wanted kids and everything was great and hunky-dory but mm-hmm. man i tell you i just it was it was it was an amazing experience well thank you chris for the call no problems so yeah i uh <laughs> both our callers here have have similar views on this it's that it's incredibly hard to date somebody that it doesn't have your political view especially I mean, as I said, politics permeates throughout everything. I mean, every part of life uh, politics deals with. So if you're somebody that's especially super engaged in issues, I can just find it or see it being impossible to date somebody outside of your own uh, political spectrum. Coming up next, Doug Ford's dishonesty around why GM plans to close their plant in Oshawa. This is The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. You're listening to The David Dole Show, News Talk 1010. Welcome back to The David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Over a month ago, Ontario Premier Doug Ford announced that he's going to have these new, 25 new, upgraded Ontario is open for business signs, which cost more than $106,000. I guess this is supposed to somehow bring business to Ontario? I mean, is this a new era of fiscal conservatism, <laughs> spending money, only if it's good for marketing your campaign slogan? But um, GM, of course, this week laid off or plans to lay off 2,800 employees in Ontario and Oshawa. But I mean, these signs, I thought, <laughs> Doug Ford, I thought Ontario was open for business. Well, it appears they aren't completely open for business, at least not to uh, these GM jobs. Now, who does Doug Ford blame for these uh, jobs lost to GM? The carbon tax. So let me read this tweet from Doug Ford uh, from Wednesday. Justin Trudeau can't campaign for a job-killing carbon tax on Monday 
and wonder why manufacturing and automotive jobs are leaving on Tuesday. Save our manufacturing jobs, Justin Trudeau. Scrap your carbon tax. Yeah, that's just total crap. So GM is closing four American plants. Now, there is no carbon tax in the U.S. But more, most importantly, GM actually supports carbon pricing. They have an entire web page built around their support for a carbon tax, even in the absence of one in America. Now, Ford also makes it sound like GM simply can't afford to keep Oshawa workers employed. But let's look at the actual facts here. So GM made $2.5 billion in profit last quarter. They spent 295 times more than the average GM worker makes on CEO pay for Mary Barra at $22 million. They spent $14 billion on stock buybacks since 2014. And of course, that's what the Trump tax cut went to, GM artificially inflating their own shares by buying back their own stocks. And uh, GM also received billions in taxpayer-funded bailout money in 2008. Now, GM's reasoning for closing the plants is that they are halting production on a number of gas-powered vehicles. So why doesn't GM just build their electric cars here? Maybe it's because Ontario is no longer attractive to this growing renewable energy industry. In its first five months in Ontario, the Ford government has eliminated rebate programs for electric car buyers and scrapped all policies that would make Ontario attractive for this industry. Doug Ford canceled 758 clean energy contracts, canceled the cap-and-trade program to reduce carbon emissions, and has offered no plan to address climate change. And uh, <laughs> the all-wise and powerful Doug Ford completely shut Ontario off from an industry that is only growing by the day. Now, those GM jobs could have been saved and more jobs could be created if there was an effort to put uh, if, there, if there was an effort put into making Ontario the hub of the green en uh, energy industry. So it's no surprise that Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner has proposed an initiative. He wants, uh, or he claims that automakers are investing $255 billion in just research and development on electric vehicles between now and 2033. And he wants Ontario to commit uh, to commit making this uh, a province to develop electric vehicles and there are companies willing to do that so for example volkswagen now volkswagen is currently looking to build an electric car factory in north america but do you think doug ford is all of a sudden going to completely reverse his position on the green energy uh, industry i think it's unlikely looking at all the moves that doug ford has made so far against workers I mean, he's frozen wages at $14 an hour. He's ripped away two paid sick days. He, of course, canceled the cap and trade, which has had the domino effect of a number of uh, planned investments, such as the $100 million that was supposed to go into school repair. Now, he has, I mean, done these amazing things, right? He's extended the hours of LCBO. <laughs> he has uh, gotten rid of a, a, a beer tax, which, I mean, I guess... A lot of these moves that he has made for workers appear to be for alcohol. Um, but, I mean, to be fair, he did cut taxes for those making minimum wage, or he will uh, next year. But if you actually calculate it out, you would make more money 
at the new minimum wage of $15 an hour than you will be making or will have with the, uh, the, re uh, the reduction in taxes. So this is just a government that hasn't so far appeared to look at data, science, or facts when it comes to making policy. So it seems incredibly unlikely, at least at this point, that Doug Ford's going to uh, reverse his position on green energy and suddenly open Ontario up for real business for the green industry, which is booming. Coming up next, stories you may, ha you may have missed this week, including an incredibly insane story of voter fraud in North Carolina. You don't want to miss that. This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show on News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture, right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Now, here's a story that you may have missed this week, and it is pretty crazy. So there is still an undecided midterm election right now in the U.S. So Republican Mark Harris beat Democrat uh, Dan McCready by a little more than 900 votes to become the next congressman from North Carolina's 9th District. But election officials have declined to certify the winner, as it appears the Republicans in this race may have tampered with absentee ballots. Get this. According to multiple reports, someone in Bladen and Robson County, North Carolina, went house to house illegally collecting absentee ballots while pretending to be an elections representative. Now, is there any proof of this? Well, Bladen and Robson County had the highest percentage of unreturned absentee ballots in the state. In fact, the numbers were unusually high. 40% of absentee ballots, uh, absentee by mail ballots, were not returned in Bladen County. And 62% of absentee by mail ballots were not returned in Robson County. So for comparison's sake, the other counties hover around 20% unreturned ballots. So clearly, there is something going on here. Now, why is Mark uh, Harris's Republican uh, campaign likely behind this? Well, in seven of the eight counties in the 9th District, Democrat McCready won a lopsided majority on the, mail in, uh, on the mailed in absentee ballots, but not in Bladen County. There, Republican Mark Harris won 61%, even though registered Republicans accounted for only 19% of the county's accepted absentee ballots. On top of that, in a signed affidavit, a witness claims to have overheard people talking outside a polling station on election day who said a well-known local operative, Leslie McCray Dallas Jr., would be paid a $40,000 bonus if the Republican, Harris, won the election. And that local operative was indeed on Mark, on Mark Harris's campaign. So... If this happened, and it appears it did happen, this once again shows you. I mean, the Republican Party all the time cries about voter fraud. Yet the, the very minor cases that there have been of voter fraud have apparently or largely been done by Republicans. And this is maybe the craziest case uh, that I've ever seen of voter fraud. You can follow me on Twitter at David Dole, last name spelled D-O-E-L. Or visit me on YouTube at therationalnational.com. Thanks for listening to The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010.